0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan.
1: John Paul Jones once said, If fear is cultivated, it will become stronger. If faith is cultivated, it will achieve mastery. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co host for more than two decades.
2: This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone.
1: So, Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode?
2: Well, Rick, this is part one of a two part series, and our question is is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? And our theme text is found in Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And from James two, 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone.
1: All right, is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? Part one and with us today also is Julie.
3: Hi, Reckon Jonathan. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: All right, so let's get into it. Coming up in today's podcast, the Bible tells us we need to be right before God. Sounds good, but why does the Bible seem to contradict itself three times on how to do that? We're going to lay out this conundrum in just a few minutes. Why does the message on how to be right before God dramatically change from the Old and New Testaments? And why do some of the same words mean different things depending on who's being talked about? we're going to dive into these things in about 15 minutes. And finally, what do trains and tracks have to do with salvation? Yeah, tracks and trains. I don't well, we'll see. We're going to discover how they figure into this whole issue of faith and works in about 45 minutes, but let's get started first. I'm a Christian. I've been called by God to follow in Jesus' footsteps. I believe that as a sinner, I cannot do anything to earn God's favor. Jesus' sacrifice gave me standing before God that I could not have without it. So, what now? Jesus promised that all his true followers would be with him in heaven. But what does that mean for me? Do I just focus on building my faith and not works, as it says in the book of Ephesians? Should I be living my life with ever greater expectations that God's providence will always come through and answer all of my heartfelt prayers? Or should I primarily focus on works and not faith, as it says in the book of James? Should I be out and about always doing things to show that I'm a person of faith? How can something that should be so simple be so confusing?
3: Well, this topic is one that's baffled centuries of Christians. We've had quite a few listeners write into our email, which is inspiration at christianquestions.com. And they've messaged us through the Christian Questions app regarding this faith versus works debate. Few topics are as big as important as our salvation. So, Rick, you've promised we're going to walk through these concepts methodically so we can all follow along. And it's a great podcast to have your Bible open if you can. But as always, we've taken those notes for you in our free CQ Rewind show notes, and they're available at our website and our app. We type out every scripture quoted on this program and much of our commentary.
1: Jonathan, did you notice how she said we're going to do this methodically? Did oh, you?
2: I heard that you loud did. and okay. clear. Did brother? Yeah, well, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah right. I heard it. The question is, am I going to follow through? <laughs> yes, okay. so we are here. going to hold you to it. Okay, all right. Yeah, because this, this this has got a lot of moving parts here. This issue of faith and works can be confusing for two reasons. The first reason is the New Testament seems to say three different things about justification and how it comes to be. So Jonathan, there's three things. First, the New Testament says God justifies, Romans 8.33.
2: Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who
1: justifies. Okay, God justifies, that's what it says. The second says faith justifies, Romans 5 verse 1.
2: Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Okay, that one says, faith is the thing that justifies. And third, works justify, James 2.24.
2: You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay. So, which is it?
1: (laughs) Well, and that's the thing, (laughs) which is it? You've got three different statements. We're going to work through actually the first two. Does God do the justifying? Does faith do the justifying in this podcast? And the third one we're really going to focus on in part two of this. So the second reason this is confusing, other than the fact that the Bible seems to say three different things, is that historical Christianity, and Julie, you already mentioned this, has wrestled with this idea, this thought, this doctrine of faith and justification for centuries. So we've got some story we want to tell. Julie, give us a little background of where we're getting our story from. Well,
3: we recently heard a sermon from a Christian brother named Robert Bennett that provides some historical background on this issue. So our sound bites today are partially quoted and paraphrased with permission. This first one's gonna be a little long, but listen closely because it's gonna begin unfolding a a very interesting historical story.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating details here.
0: In Northeastern Germany, October 31st, 1517, a 34-year-old priest named Martin Luther nailed 95 debate points to his Wittenberg church door. With this posting, Luther unintentionally lit a wildfire that would burn for the next three centuries, the Protestant Reformation. The match that lit this was a single phrase of scripture, the just shall live by faith. How could this cause such a revolution of thought? His thesis never directly talked about the just living by faith. Luther was critiquing the Catholic Church's sale of indulgences. Unique to Catholic theology, when certain conditions were met, an indulgence provided the recipient remission from temporal punishment associated with the sin committed. An indulgence did not forgive the sin, it only removed the punishment. An act was required in order to provide some proof of repentance. Forgiveness as a result of that act came to be known as an indulgence. Although not scriptural, purgatory was incorporated. It was supposed to be a place somewhere between a burning hell and heaven, where punishment for sins committed in this life was meted out. Now, an indulgence came to mean you were released from a certain number of days or years of that punishment. These were called partial indulgences. They could be earned by an act of charity or by performing certain prayers, such as the rosary. A pilgrimage to a holy site would qualify as an act of indulgence, as well as acts like building a bridge or rebuilding a town that had been burnt down. A plenary indulgence allowed you to bypass purgatory and go straight to heaven. Pope Urban II offered this type of indulgence to anyone who participated in the First Crusade in 1095 AD. Anyone who went on that crusade would be offered immediate entrance into heaven when they died. Around the same time, the papacy began to accept money for an indulgence. This meant that you could now buy your way out of purgatory, and papacy was the broker you needed to go through.
3: Well, I thought that was very interesting. You had partial indulgences and these plenary indulgences, which were kind of like a get out of jail free card. It could get you right to heaven. And we're soon going to hear as we proceed with this historical account, what the connection is between these indulgences, which is being able to perform works or give money and the phrase that just shall live by faith.
1: Right, and so we want to put some history in place. We're going to keep coming back to Martin Luther, because it's important history that we have a lot of the denominational differences based on, and it's important to realize and understand how it all happened. So, to our subject now, very specifically, our first and perhaps most foundational question regarding the expression, the just shall live by faith. Jonathan, what's the question?
2: Who are the just? Who
1: are the just, Okay. Let's start with a scriptural basis and some definitions regarding justification. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2-4. through four.
2: And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. And to understand the context, this is referring to the Chaldeans of that time and represents unbelievers in general. Continuing, but the just shall live by his faith.
3: And the uh, just a quick side note, this Habakkuk scripture, this is the only time this phrase, the just shall live by faith, appears in the Old Testament.
1: Okay, so we've got this phrase, it's in one of the what's called the Minor Prophets, and it gives us a very strong sense of, well, the way God looks at us and what why faith is important. How important is faith in relation to other things? That's what we want to uncover. So, our question, who are the just? Because it says in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. So what was the Old Testament meaning of that word for just? Jonathan, what do we have? Well,
2: Rick and Julie, it is
1: just. <laughs> okay. Just that's no said. help. <laughs> so it's it's just just. Is that what we're saying? That's correct. <laughs> okay. <Rick. laughs> All right. Now look, this is the adjective form adjective form of the word, implying that those who act in a godly righteous manner are considered just. Okay. With the law, we'll talk about what that means in a little while. But those who act in a godly righteous manner are considered just just or upright, if you will. Let's look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 as an example of this particular word.
2: These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God.
3: So, Jonathan, when you said Noah was righteous, That word there is the Hebrew word, uh, the same thing for just. So just or justification is used interchangeably with righteous or righteousness. So who are the just? Well, here Noah was one of the just because he was translated as righteousness, same word.
1: And it's important to realize that righteousness biblically is not just doing what I think is the right thing. It is doing what God thinks is the right thing, according to his law, according to his precepts, according to what his prophecies and so forth. So righteousness in the Bible is godly righteousness, not just, oh, well, I think I'm pretty good. That doesn't have anything to do with godly righteousness. So see that Noah was, quote, just, unquote, before God. Now, let's look at two more scriptures. The following two scriptures use the noun form of this same word for righteousness and just. The first is Genesis 15, verses 3 to 6.
2: And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said to him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness.
1: Okay, that word righteousness is the noun form. Counted it to him for, Jonathan, what what does that word actually mean?
2: It means righteousness, rectitude, justice, and virtue.
1: Okay, so it's that it's that upstanding uh, character before God, a character that God looks at and and says, "This is good." That's that's what we're looking at. Go ahead, Julie.
3: So what this is saying is, this was when Abraham um, was going to be given Isaac a son, yes, an heir, yes, and he, he was already what? How old at this point? Yeah, uh, ninety something. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He ends up. So he ha- had
3: faith in this,
1: right? Right, and it says, and he believed in the Lord. Why? Because he was believing something that was impossible. But God made it happen anyway. And God looked at that as godly righteousness. He's just, he's upstanding before God. Same word is used in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14. These
2: three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. They should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God.
1: So they also, righteousness, had that same justified standing before God that God looks at it in a, in a in a in a very powerful very positive way. So Julie observations on what we've talked about thus far with the meaning of the word and the people and so forth.
3: Okay, so real simple. Very few are described individually with this word for just or righteous in the Old Testament. Noah, Abraham, Daniel, Job, these four specifically have righteousness attributed to them. And their just or righteous standing is described in the context of walking with and believing
1: God. So who are the just? You've got personal descriptions of individuals who are upstanding before God. Now remember Habakkuk said, and the just shall live by their faith. Okay? So that's an important aspect of this whole thing. So Jonathan, who are the just? Let's see if we can wrap this up.
2: In the Old Testament, they were those individuals who had deep faith and listened to and walked with God. They served him with their might, no matter what the cost.
1: Okay, individuals with deep faith who listened to and walked with God.
2: So, Rick, I have a question of clarity. Our main question is, is it faith or works that gets you to heaven? So, based on what we've learned, does this mean these righteous men went to heaven?
1: Good question. The answer is no, they didn't. You know, the, they were righteous before God. What does that mean? Well, where did God put them? We're going to develop that a little bit further, but no, they did not go to heaven. We want to be very, very clear about that, because this justification question is a very big and important question overall. So now, as we look at this whole thing, looking at the Old Testament shows us a lot of inspirational faithfulness. Many stepped up and followed it.
2: What about the law given to Israel? Didn't that give the whole nation righteousness before God?
1: You know, it's interesting that the of the four individuals mentioned last segment, only Daniel was singled out in the category of righteousness after the law was established. Perhaps we can take this as a lesson regarding the power and importance of personal faith. In any case, we cannot discount the role that the law played in bringing Israel to a place where they could righteously stand before God. So we really focused on some individuals who were just before God. And you know, the question, is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? And the scripture, the just shall live by faith. Who were the just in the Old Testament? We're showing you examples and what it actually means. Now we're going to expand that a little bit more. God points out several individuals and calls them just and righteous, and that's good. Now let's talk about the Old Testament The nation of israel in the old testament there was a reckoned justification that was achieved through animal sacrifices
3: wait what do you mean by reckoned justification they weren't actually justified so noah abraham daniel and job were they reckoned
1: yes so that's a good question glad you asked that so a reckoned justification means a they were considered right before god were they actually did were their sins actually taken away from them no but they were considered clean before God because of the examples of faith that we were just talking about and because in the uh, sacrifices of Israel, they provided the covering for their sins. So this atonement that we're going to be just touching on, this um, um, reparation for sin was conditional as the sacrifices needed to be continually made year after year. And we know this from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1-4. through four. And again, we're looking at the nation of Israel now. We were talking about individuals before, and now it's the nation of Israel.
2: For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would not, no longer have have a consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away all sins. Well, Rick, here is the word that stands out to me, impossible.
1: Yeah, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Folks, this is really important if you want to understand being right before God. They were considered right before God, but Paul, in the book of Hebrews, tells us, even though they made those sacrifices, and even when they were doing it faithfully, year by year by year, it didn't take away their sins. It just bought them more time. That's really what it did. So that's an important thing. To be reckoned justified buys you time, but it doesn't take away, completely erase your sins. We're going to get to how that works in a little while. So Jonathan, who are the just so far?
2: In the Old Testament, we can see how God's law was a justifier of the people, though it was a temporary righteousness. Animal sacrifices were reminders of their inherent sinfulness and inability to be righteous on their own.
3: So did the atoning sacrifices Israel made cover them for the upcoming year or was it forgiveness for all the sins they committed in
2: the prior year? Pay it forward uh, for the upcoming year.
1: Okay. Okay. All right, so, so the sacrifices were, okay, we're, I'm covering you, go, moving forward. This is important. You know, and just to, just kind of a, a quick analogy here to hopefully make it a little bit simpler. We're talking about being right before God. Is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? That's our, our big, big questions, our two-part series here. And we're looking at who's just, who's right before God. The sacrifices that Israel made, that Abraham made, all those, those are like, like a, a warranty, You know, with Israel, they had to do these sacrifices year by year. It's like they had a one-year warranty on parts and labor. So you buy the widget, and for the next year, anything goes wrong, parts and labor-wise, it's covered for free. That's what the sacrifices were. They covered their lives by coming under those sacrifices and remaining faithful. That's what it was. It didn't erase their sins, but it covered them. That's reckoned justification. That's considered right before God. Okay, let's go now back to the Martin Luther story. Uh, We're talking about indulgences, and how did Martin Luther make the connection here um, to, to say, wait, wait, there's something very dramatically wrong with all of this. Let's go back, just pick up basically where we left off.
0: In Martin Luther's world, this doctrine of indulgence was a common, accepted belief. People actually thought this was the way God's grace worked. Notice that this belief was actually saying, the works these indulgences represented were really an attempt to earn justification. By the time Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the Church at Wittenberg, trafficking in the sale of indulgences had become incredibly obnoxious and corrupt. Prior to the invention of the printing press, when papacy wanted to grant an indulgence, they needed to write out the certificates by hand. And then the Pope had to sign them. It was tedious and limited to the number of indulgences that could be granted. But the printing press changed everything. They could make the certificates by the thousands. When an agent of the Vatican sold one to the public, he just filled in the blank with the name of the purchaser.
1: You know, you you think about that and you think how far off it got. And you had something that was not good at the beginning. And then when the printing press comes into play, it just accelerates the darkness that is being perpetuated. Martin Luther is living at this time. So he's seeing this and saying there's something dramatically wrong with this. So let, let's let's continue to move forward.
2: So Rick, who are the just in the New Testament, and is being just the same as in the Old Testament?
1: Okay, that's a really good question. So we talked about the Old Testament, who the just are there. How about the New Testament, and is it the same? Well, good thing we have the Apostle Paul. He answers these, those two questions, Jonathan, very specifically. So before we get to the answers, let's define a couple of, well, actually three, New Testament words that are used primarily for justification. Remember, justification and righteousness were very similar in the Old Testament. Let's see if there's any differences here.
2: And right before I answer that first uh, definition, one more question about the Old Testament. Who goes to heaven? How about only those who sacrifice animals? We just talked about those that that were covered
1: for a year. Okay, so you're questioning, okay, do those who sacrifice animals go to heaven because they got the warranty?
2: Right. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, no, they don't. (laughs) Okay, it's a warranty. It buys you time, but it doesn't erase the sins. So how do you go to heaven? Folks, stay tuned, because we're going to show you how that works marvelously in the New Testament. So now, Jonathan, let's go. Sorry about that.
2: No problem. The first definition, to render or show or regard as just or innocent.
1: Okay, so render or show, just or innocent. Okay, now there's two shades of meaning. You can render somebody. um, To render means, okay, that's the way it is. Or to show as. So you've got a slight shade of meaning to make just or innocent, or to regard as just or innocent, and we got to be careful. We'll explain how that develops in a a few minutes.
2: The next word is equitable by implication, innocent.
1: Okay, equitable, innocent, and what's the third word? Acquittal. That is important. When you acquit somebody of something, you erase it. Okay, so we're gonna we'll leave the definitions there, and we'll come back. To how this all works. So, Jonathan, what about justification in the New Testament?
2: Well, Rick and Julie, justification is an event. It is the acquitting, the making right of an individual who was previously in the wrong. The person does not earn justification, but is given it.
3: And one thing that just struck me is that being this just, having this who is the just, being just or righteous gives you the opportunity to now work with God or God to work with you. You have a relationship with him. And if you're not in that standing, God's not dealing with you because he's not gonna deal with anything that is so blatantly sinful like regular regular us. Um, so I think that's really important. So there's four basic questions whose answers separate the Christian denominations on this whole face versus works topic. And Jonathan, you just hit on the first question is justification a process or an event? Some denominations say it's a process. Others say it's an event. We're saying it is an event. So something happens where I wasn't justified and now suddenly I am. So how does that work? What's the event that happens?
1: So you're asking me,
3: yeah,
1: well, yeah. What, how, <laughs> well, do, how does it work? What event happens
3: okay, so I can have that event? Okay. I want I'm, event?
1: Not, I'm not telling you yet. Okay. We're going to get to what? that. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna unfold that as we go. But we do see it as an event because think about it this way. The word acquittal is an event. When you are acquitted, once it's done, it's done, stamped, approved, over. So we'll see how that works. But we do see it as an event, and and we'll we'll fill those blanks in, I promise. Okay, so here's where we have to ask, okay, who or what then makes us right? It begins, just like in the Old Testament, with God. And here's one of the themes that we're going to see. Everything we talk about always begins with the Father, always. And that's something we always just have to always keep in order. Let's look at Romans eight thirty three.
2: Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies.
1: Okay. God is the one who justifies. We touched on that scripture at the very beginning of the podcast. So how does God do this? Let's dig in here, because it's like, okay, that seems to contradict the idea that faith justifies or works justify. It says God justifies. How does he do this? Well, ask this question. Can we, in this sinful world, ever earn acquittal from the sin of Adam? No, 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 we can't. There are no works that any of us could ever do— to earn true justification. There is only one path. And we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and then verses 24 through 28 to try and understand that path.
3: Okay, but wait. The sin of Adam is what we inherited through no fault of our own. We've heard this called original sin, and we're all caught up in it. But what about those sins that we intentionally commit? Where's our covering for that?
1: Where's well, our acquittal? You know, there there's something called... Um, uh, forgiveness. And when we, are, when, we, when we commit sins, we have to ask for forgiveness for those sins, and, and God will forgive us. The thing is that any imperfect human being has to have, like you said before, Julie, something to stand on to stand before God. Israel had their sacrifices to stand on to stand before God. Abraham had his faith and his sacrifices. Look, he was willing to sacrifice his son he had a sacrificial bent to him. Daniel, you think about Daniel. He's the one who would, 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 would worship God three times a day, even though it meant being thrown to the lions. You see, They had something solid to stand on, to stand before God, and we're always looking for God to take care of their sins. So you've got the original sin of Adam, and then you've got our sins. We want to understand that justification actually takes away the original sin of Adam. Acquittal. You get you get that erased and now it's a whole different ballgame. What does that mean? We're going to get to that a little bit in, in a little while. Okay. A lot lot of details here. A lot of details. So folks stay stay with us. All right Jonathan back to Romans 3 20 then 24 to 28.
2: Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, and that word propitiation means satisfaction, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the obedience of God, uh, forbearance of God.
1: Okay, so when we look at those verses so far, we'll pause there and then we'll get to 26 to 28 in a moment. Justification is an undeserved gift from God. It comes through Jesus' sacrifice. It's a gift from God that comes through Jesus. Now listen to these next verses, because they really help to verify this. Verses 26 through 28. To declare,
2: I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law or works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law.
1: Okay, a man's justified by faith without the deeds of the law because it comes from God through Jesus. Jesus is the reason, and faith is what's built upon it. There are no works involved here.
2: So is it justification by faith?
1: Yeah, it is. So the question is, what about works? Aha! Hang on. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on. Okay, God is clearly justifying us by faith. This faith is in the unmerited favor, we already talked about this, God exhibited by sending his Son to cover or to make good for our sins. It is faith in salvation that brings this justification to light. This reasoning clearly... Carries the actual acquittal, the actual justification, meaning that we were talking about uh, with the definition of the words.
3: So, um, what event has to occur in order for us to be justified? Is it when we're baptized?
1: Okay, that's a good question. Is it? Does well, it,
2: well I, I Rick hold on. I was baptized as an infant. Did that justify me?
1: Uh, were you a man of faith?
2: Uh, No, I was an infant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know you're a man of faith now, but no, you were not a man of faith then. So No. no. You see, that's the thing. We have to be careful with these things, because we see justification, acquittal, as an event, a very specific event, and we're building up to it. But it doesn't happen when you're an infant, okay? It doesn't happen when you're baptized. It's something much bigger than that. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God through Jesus. That's really... The the answer here, Julie, to the the baptism question. So let's go a little bit further in Romans. Paul brings Abraham into the picture, and this may sound a little familiar. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3.
2: What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And uh, if we go back to Genesis 15, verse 6, which we read in the first segment, it says, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So it confirms it was counted as righteousness.
1: Counted. It wasn't an an erasing of things, but it was counted as righteous. As a matter of fact, that word counted, Jonathan, here, what what does it mean?
2: Oh, it's interesting. To take an inventory of, or estimate.
1: So to, to estimate, you know, to estimate, it was estimated to, to, to Abraham as righteousness. So but that was your reckoned.
3: It was reckoned exactly. to him. It wasn't actual, it wasn't an acquittal.
1: Right. And now, why are we being so, so so nitpicky about this? Because it all has to do with Jesus. And the bottom line is before Jesus, it's all estimated. After Jesus, there's a reality that wasn't just simply did not exist beforehand. So God put things in place so we could understand it, and he could work with individuals and a nation, but afterwards it became the real thing. And again, we're going to keep developing this. There's a lot to this. So here's the question now. Does this mean Abraham is acquitted from Adam's sin? No. 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 See? See? We're, We're getting it, okay? The Old Testament never spoke of acquittal. God considered Abraham to be righteous because of his faithful life.
3: Because there was no ransom yet. So Jesus hadn't died yet to take the place of Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, As in Adam all die, so as in Christ shall all be made alive. But it sounds like God did the most he could before Jesus came on the scene within the confines of the legal penalty for sin by allowing these righteous ones to be with him. Exactly.
1: That's precisely it. There was no ransom yet. So God still found ways to give humanity access to him. That's how merciful he is. is But
3: only ransom allowed them to go to heaven.
1: And that is where the whole thing develops, and that's where the actual acquittal comes into play. So now it's starting to, to gel. Okay, so Jonathan, who are the New Testament just?
2: Those to whom salvation has been applied as they have been called and chosen to follow Jesus.
3: Okay, but wait, so how is salvation applied? You said those to whom salvation is applied, how does that work? Ah, so many questions!
1: Yeah, and, and salvation is a big part of this. Uh, we're not going to get into it here, but it's coming. It's coming just uh, in, in our last segment. We're going to really get deeply into salvation, but it is applied through the ransom. Okay, we're going to see how that works very, very specifically a little bit uh, a little bit later on. So there's both a complexity and a wisdom here as we unfold and absorb the Bible's justification teachings.
2: We now see justification before God in the Old and New Testaments. Is it different or the same?
1: There are several similarities. First, faith has been proven to be one of paramount importance whether you believed or I'm sorry, whether you lived before or after Jesus. Second, some of the same words are used to describe both Old and New Testament justification. Third, in both Testaments there seems to be a focus on individuals when we look at justification by faith. So there are a lot of similarities, but there's also specific differences. Before we get into those similarities and differences, let's go back to the Martin Luther story, as he is seeing the dramatic misuse of something that was already off, this indulgence thing, and the the advent of the printing press made it so they were—, they were available anywhere, just fill in, literally fill in the name, and they get whatever it is they're supposed to get, none of which, incidentally, has anything to do with following scripture. Just making that clear. Let's continue with the story.
0: In 1517, Pope Leo X wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and needed money. He authorized the sale of plenary indulgences to fund his project, the Get Out of Jail Free Cards. There was one particular Dominican monk who was good at selling them, named Johann Tetzel. He had several jingles he used quite effectively, one of which was one of the subjects of Luther's 95 Thesis and probably the most famous, quote, As soon as the coin in the coffer clinks, a soul from purgatory springs, end quote. Tetzel made his way across northern Germany selling these certificates of indulgence. Some of Luther's parishioners bought them, which upset Luther.
1: You know, you just get the sense that it's building, and Luther is looking at this saying something is dramatically, dramatically wrong here. I mean, when you talk about what was happening back then, and you see the Scriptures, you say, there is not even any remote connection between what they were t- doing and taking from the people versus, and the just shall live by their faith. It just doesn't—it's there, there, it, like you're, you, you, you have a, a totally different source of your information. Anyway, the this, this story is important because it helps us understand the debate of faith versus works. And you can see that that's very works-related, uh, and actually, again, very unscriptural. So, let's get to the differences. Here are the marked Old and New Testament differences in justification. We're going to focus on two. First, the Old Testament justification by faith was based on faithful obedience and resulted in earthly blessing. And we touched on that by highlighting a few individual lives. Let's sort of wrap that up with Hebrews 11, 39 to 40.
2: And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect.
1: Okay, so we've got this sense that they were following God, they were looking for things, God blessed them, but it was a very different situation than here. The New Testament justification by faith is based on the sacrifice of Jesus, and we keep coming back to this, and it's not just the sacrifice of Jesus, and following him even unto death, and and that has a heavenly destiny.
3: So just to be clear, to answer Jonathan's question as to who's in heaven, are those in the Old Testament in heaven? No one from the Old Testament, even those special righteous ones, were promised or given a heavenly reward. There's other scriptures that show they'll be resurrected back on earth in the kingdom, but that's a different podcast.
1: Yes. Okay. So we're clearly, we're clearing out, trying to clear out all of the potential misconceptions so we can understand what justification in the New Testament actually looks like. Next scripture is important because it helps us to personalize what justification brings us to. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, and Jonathan, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. These words are among the last words he spoke to his followers. He saved some very important things for the end. Listen carefully.
2: Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also.
1: You see the personal depth of connection here. Jesus is saying, I'm going away. He's essentially saying, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. I'm going to die I will be raised, and I'm going away. After I'm raised, and after the, the, the 40 days, and after my ascension, he's, he's kind of putting all that together, saying, I'm not going to be with you anymore. But what I'm doing is I'm preparing a place for you so that where I am, where is he when he's gone away? Heaven. He's in heaven. I am preparing a place for you. Never in the Old Testament did you have anything remotely close to that. Here's this personal invitation for the footstep followers of Jesus who are going to walk with him sacrificially to be with him in heaven. That is a whole different story. And now when we talk about justification in that context, folks, that's where the meaning gets so much deeper, and it changes so much. So Old Testament characters, they were faithful to God, no question about it, but they weren't given some kind of heavenly reward. They were given the opportunity to be blessed as they were. They sometimes received promises, sometimes they didn't. They're they're facing, you know, coming with resurrection as well, but not heavenly at this point here. So for those who follow Jesus, the true footstep followers of Jesus, it is heaven. The second point of distinction between Old and New Testament, and this is big, Adam had the distinct designation of being the only Old Testament person to be called a son of God. We know that through his genealogy, uh, through the genealogy of Jesus, in in Luke chapter 3, verse 38.
2: The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God.
1: You see, Adam is just very, very plainly called the son of God. He was the direct creation uh, of God. Sin cost Adam and the rest of us that sonship relationship. After Adam, and after that sin, you never had anybody in the Old Testament, any human being, ever called a son of God. Abraham, we don't use Abraham as an example, he was called a friend of God, and this shows how lofty his relationship uh, was with the Creator. James 2.23 recognizes that.
2: And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God.
1: Right. He was called the friend of God. And again, it quotes that same Genesis scripture, Jonathan, that we started the, uh, out with in, in the first segment. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's a friend of God, not a son of God. Now we look at the entire Old Testament, and even, Hab- and even Abraham, they were all bound to serve God. The law... The old testament law of israel focus them on that service by the requirement to keep it and do the works required now works come into play here very very specifically so we have abraham as a friend of god and now we go to israel and we let's look at the relationship that they had with god through moses and the law hebrews chapter 3 jonathan let's do verses 1 and 2 and then verses 5 and 6
2: therefore holy brethren Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our Confidence works alert (laughs) and continuing, and the boast of our hope
1: firm until the end. Okay, so there's a huge contrast here. Moses was faithful, you can't deny it. Everywhere you see the faithfulness of Moses in all of his house. But what was his house? They were house of servants, right? They were servants, they served God faithfully, and God loved them and God blessed them. But he says Christ was faithful as what? The son. Big difference. And it says whose house we are if we hold fast, it works alert, to our our confidence. So you see there's a huge difference between the old and the new. And this is where justification Mm -hmm. changes dramatically. Servants versus sonship. So now we're going to prove that in the New Testament. Notice the difference now in these next scriptures as to how Jesus teaches us to identify with God, and we're going to see sonship is back.
3: So Adam was a son, he was family, and that was lost in the garden because of sin, but now the faithful, in, in, after the New Testament, after Jesus, have this opportunity to be called sons, not friends or servants. Yes. That's pretty, that's that's big.
1: That's Bigger than that, even. I mean, and Jesus huge. <laughs> was teaching us that all the way through. Jonathan, go ahead.
2: It's humbling.
1: It is. Yes. Because you see the faithfulness of Abraham and Moses and Daniel and Joseph and, and, and Job, and you say, wait, wait, what? They didn't even get to be sons. And that's what Jesus taught at, through his ministry. Listen, listen to these few scriptures. Just, we just picked just a few. Matthew 5 verses 44 to 45. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking directly to his closest followers, although a lot of other people are listening in.
2: But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven.
1: So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's not something you heard talked about, in the Old Testament. Matthew 6, verses 8 through 9. So do not
2: be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
3: How many times have I heard that prayer and I never realized that Instead of praying God as an almighty God who is in heaven, suddenly Jesus is saying our Father, indicating that we are sons. That's a complete paradigm shift that we're even able to call him our Father.
1: And, and you know, he, he, he gives this teaching because his, his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. They're his disciples. They're his footstep followers. And so he's basically saying, for you, it is our Father because you are no longer part of that. You are with me, and there's something very, 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 very special. And just to further prove the point, one, one last scripture. Jesus dies. He's crucified. He's raised parts of three days later, and the first person he speaks to is Mary. Listen to what he says to Mary after he, she begins to figure out who he is. So we're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 16 through 18.
2: Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her.
1: You see what he said? I ascend to my Father and your Father. Sonship breaks wide open because he is raised from the dead. Acquittal, remember acquittal versus being reckoned or considered just? Acquittal is now in place because the payment has been made. Changes everything about justification. Everything, because sonship is now real, Never before had it been there except with Adam. So, Jonathan, New Testament justification by faith, where where are we with that?
2: Well, faith is clearly based upon God's call, our acceptance, and the application of Jesus' ransom to us. Remember, the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus provides actual acquittal for our sins. And a question, do all Christians go to heaven because of the acquittal?
1: You know that's a good question, and I want I'm going to be very very specific in the answer. All true Christians go to heaven by being. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a lot to that, and in the next segment, we're really going to begin to unfold what that means. But no, honestly and truly, all Christians don't go to heaven because of that acquittal. All true Christians do. There's a huge. Difference? What is it? Well, that's where we're heading next. You know, here's the thing. God's grace is astounding. The opportunity to be elevated to being his sons is hard to even comprehend.
2: So justification is very different in the New Testament. How does this all tie in with salvation?
1: Salvation is the big message of the New Testament. Here it comes, Julie, okay? Because it's the message that is for Jesus' followers as well as the whole world, we're going to focus on how it applies to Jesus' disciples at this point in our podcast. In Christianity, this is, this idea of salvation is another topic of debate. So let's uncover where justification fits within salvation.
3: And I do want to quote episode number 1108, what Three Steps Will Get Us to Heaven, Part 1. If you're interested in going a little deeper in this discussion, just go to our website or our app and search 1108, and it'll bring up that next podcast for you.
1: Okay, so we're going to go back to a Martin Luther's story one more time, and it's going to kind of conclude as to what began to be his driving force and what became the, the force of what's called uh, the Reformation. Listen in.
0: Luther struggled for a long time trying to make himself acceptable to God. But he came to realize his inability to do anything or offer anything that could be acceptable to the Creator of the universe. This struggle tormented him greatly until, in the course of time, he became a professor of theology and was allowed to study the Bible for himself. Then came the lightbulb moment. He came across the phrase, the just shall live by faith. What an eye-opener that was! As Luther continued to study the Bible, he eventually came to understand justification by faith just as we know it today. Luther's protest was that indulgences should not exist. His argument was that they did not and could not justify anyone before God. Within weeks, copies of what he nailed to the door were all over Europe. The Reformation had begun, and his banner cry was, The just shall live by faith.
1: So that's how
3: we see how it it ties in these indulgences were all works you pay us money or you do this certain sum and then you can stand righteous before God and have a relationship with him and go to heaven. Luther was saying well that is absolutely not the way it works. So the just the just shall live by faith. That's how this ties in.
1: Okay, now, what does that do with works? Let's not forget the idea, because the big question, you know, in part one and part two here, is it faith or works that get us to heaven? Works is critical. They're critical. They are. But, but they're th- part two. But they're part <laughs> two. And and it's true. The just shall live by faith. And when we look at justification, we can see faith is enormous in this whole process. So let's get to... Uh, d- discussing uh, a little bit further. You know, just, we want to talk about salvation, and we want to talk about justification. Let's go a little deeper into setting up, let's, again, one more time, redefine uh, salvation and then define justification. Jonathan, salvation, go ahead.
2: Well, the big picture of the entire Bible, humanity lost harmony with God by Adam's disobedience. The Bible is about reconciling
1: all of mankind back
2: to God, paradise lost, paradise found. That's salvation.
1: Right. And remember, sonship lost, sonship found. That's salvation. Okay, Julie, just one more go at defining justification before we go into what causes salvation.
3: Well, We already said it's being made righteous. So it's either reckoned, meaning you're counted as, or actually acquitted, making right an individual who was previously wrong. The application of the ransom price of Jesus allows for that acquittal justification, that you know, hardcore version of justification. <laughs> we are released from the sin of Adam. And in the Old Testament, the law provided this reckon justification. Prior to the law, we learned that there was a handful of individuals who were reckoned justified, able to have a relationship with God because of their extreme faith.
1: Okay. So we've got salvation and we've got justification. The two. I do have a quick question. Go ahead.
3: I'm sorry. Is personal salvation though synonymous with justification? Because I think people tend to use these terms interchangeably. Uh,
1: personal salvation, justification is part of personal salvation, and we're going to see exactly how that fits together. So In- it's
3: almost like salvation is the big umbrella. Exactly. Un- when sal- Justification is underneath it. Okay. Because
1: remember, we're 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 specifically saying justification is an event. It's not a process. Salvation is a process. Justification is an event, the key event within the salvation process.
3: And you're not going to tell me when the event happens. Well,
1: yes, I am. We're going to do that now. We're going to get to that right now, okay? So the question, another one of these general questions, what causes salvation? Well, some say faith is the cause of salvation and works are the evidence of it. Others say faith receives the gift of salvation rather than causes it. What do we say? what we say is for salvation to be engaged in this age of the gospel right here right now in in the time in which we are living and all the time since Jesus the age of the gospel for it to be engaged in this in this in this period of time the stage had to first be set there are four things that really set the stage for salvation the fifth thing is the engagement of that, And that's what Julie's been bugging me about this whole podcast is, will you get to this point already? So what's the stage? First point, God's salvation plan had to be in place. Now, this is a big point, but it's very clearly defined for us in First 1 Peter
2: 1.20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the
1: sake of you. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. God knew the direction of sin as he was developing things. He knew that sin would be tried. It would be out there, and he knew that he would let it develop. And he also knew that he would cut it off, and he had specifically the plan in place long before it happened. So it wasn't something that went awry. It was something that God expected to see and, and expected to fix so that a lesson for eternity could be known. That's what salvation really is. God's plan had to be in place. That's the first point. And it was, before he started, it was there. Second point, Jesus had to do his part. And we know that through Philippians chapter 2, verses eight and nine.
2: Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name.
1: Okay, Jesus had to become the man Christ Jesus. He had to become obedient, not just saying yes sir, no sir, obedient to the point of death, even a crucifixion death. That is the reason God highly exalted him, and that was the payment... That needed to be made so actual, as Julie said, hardcore justification could be put in place. Actual acquittal could be put in place. Jesus had to do his part, and he did. So the plan had to be in place. Jesus had to do his part. Now, you know, personal salvation. Here's where it becomes alive. The third point here is God has to call out followers of Jesus, now, we know that's the process because Jesus tells us that in John 6, 44.
2: No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day.
1: No one comes to the Father for sonship unless—comes uh, come, uh, to Jesus, rather—unless the Father draws him, okay? So there's a calling that the Father is doing to say, come, follow Jesus, Come follow He is picking and choosing those who he thinks will be able to manage the, the the this call of great difficulty and of great sacrifice. So the call has to come from God to follow Jesus. Okay, the plan has to be in place. Jesus has to do his part, and for salvation, acquittal to work right now, the call has to be there. The for uh, um the fourth point is the perfect. Pro- per- prospective followers must, by faith, answer the call. It's not just good enough for God to call you. That, that does, that's just the beginning process. See, we're working up to the point of actual justification. There has to be an answer to that call. Luke 9, 23 and 24.
2: And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it.
1: Okay. Take up your cross daily. You have to answer. You have to be willing to say, this is the way I am going to live. That's a hard thing. And that's, Jonathan, you said, do all Christians go to heaven because of the acquittal thing? Here's one of the, this is one of the parts. Okay. Okay daily sacrifice of my will to do the will of God. Not on Sundays, not on Sundays and Wednesdays, all the time. That's my life. And now, Julie, here we go. Here's where actual justification, actual acquittal takes place. The fifth point, God must accept the answer. His acceptance is salvation and action. And this is where justification takes place. First uh, John 3, 2.
2: Beloved now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when we, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is.
3: So if God, if God calls, we answer the call, God accepts the answer. Is that when we receive a measure of the Holy Spirit to help live our life? And therefore, is that the event?
1: That is the event. That is where the acquittal actually takes place. When so God we are
3: justified at that point,
1: right? When okay. he, when he says, you know, he calls, he calls you, Julie. You answer the call, and then he has to say, yes, you're, you're. I, I will work with you. Here is my spirit. When he says yes, I will work with you. What he's saying is, I'm applying Jesus' ransom sacrifice to your personal, individual life. That's what he's saying right there okay you know and romans 12 1 to 2 yeah and we're going to actually develop romans 12 to 2 in our next in, in, in part two because it talks about being a, a a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable it's got to be acceptable to god and that's how we learn to transform our lives that's what this is let me let me, let me put put an analogy did you have another question julie
3: well, I just wanted to say that you remember we talked about those four questions. Yes. That whose answers vary by Christian denomination. The first was: is it an event or a process? We said it was an event. That second question is: is justification put into effect by divine action alone, by divine and human action together, or by human action alone? How oh, would you answer that?
1: Okay, and you know that's where it, it is by divine action. Okay. Because it, that's
3: that begettel of the Holy Spirit. Right. It's to when a called one.
1: It's God saying yes. I accept your willingness to walk in Jesus' footsteps. God's acceptance is putting it all in place. Here's an analogy, a story, if you will, that hopefully helps to illustrate the point. The analogy is of a railroad track that has a switch to change which track the train travels on. Now, that switch changes the train's destination, okay? That's that's the basic picture— As a result of Adam's sin, the default track that each human being is on is sinful and leads to death. We're all on our own track, and it always is going to lead to death. There is no hope for eternal life without changing tracks. God, in his foresight and mercy, designed each and every human track to have one switch built into it. This switch is the gracious and justice-satisfying merit of Jesus' death and resurrection— This switch was installed when Jesus died and became operational when he was raised. So in this present age, the switch is only engaged when an individual is called by God to follow Jesus. We answer the call, God accepts us, and when God accepts us, he flips that switch, changing our destination from death to life. So we're secure on this new track, and we can only be derailed by our own blatant disobedience. So for the rest of the world, they stay on that original track that leads to death until their resurrection, and then God will flip their switch as well.
3: Well, that, that that makes a lot of sense, this idea of this track. But you said something interesting. You said we can only be derailed by our own blatant disobedience. And you know that third question that separates denominations is can justification be lost? So you're saying yes.
1: Yes, absolutely. Part two. We're going to get into that in great, okay. in great okay. depth. because that's interesting. And, and that's where works come into play, okay? You know, faith without works is dead. Why? That's one of the very reasons. That's why you've got to listen to part two because it's going to put it all together. So let's see if we can wrap this up. How do we know what justific- uh, what New Testament justification consists of? Well, you know, for it to make sense— uh, we got to look at Jesus' followers being given the same tools to overcome the sinful world that he had. Jesus was given a very specific tool. Let's look at that, Matthew 3, 16-17.
2: After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased."
1: Okay, the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. What did Jesus do right after he was baptized? He went into the wilderness for 40 days, and he had the Spirit working with him and through him, and he prepared himself because God's influence was with him. That's the tool that Jesus was given, to be able to do the will of the Father. That's the tool that gave him the ability to perform miracles, to be able to teach the way he taught and so forth. Well, Jesus assures his followers that they would have appropriate help because justification means the ransom would have been applied to them, and they, like him, were now on trial for life. So Jesus tells his followers, you and I, if we are true followers of Christ, exactly what he told his followers right the night before he was crucified. We were quoting from John 14 a few minutes ago. Let's go back there, John 14, verses 16 and 17. Here is how Jesus is describing the help they're going to have when he's not around in in, in person.
2: I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that it may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you.
1: Okay, so you see that the spirit of truth, the same power and influence of God, is given to Jesus' followers. So, Julie, when we were talking about that earlier and say, what's the the point at which the, the the, the switch gets flipped? It's when God says, I accept you, and here's how I'm showing you. Okay? And that's what it it brings us to next. Where does this justification by faith lead? It leads to the gift of the Spirit, like we already talked about, and that seals the justified state. Now, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And folks, listen carefully here, because it shows us the depth of what's happening and the power and the mercy and the grace of God in this whole thing.
2: This is the Weymouth Translation. And in him, you Gentiles also, after listening to the message of the truth, the good news of your salvation, having believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That spirit being a pledge and a foretaste of our inheritance in anticipation of its full redemption, the inheritance which he had purchased to be specially his for the extolling of his glory. Rick and Julie no other influence in heaven and earth can take me off of that path except for me.
1: Right. And so it's saying that this spirit is the pledge and foretaste of our inheritance. Remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He offered heaven for the first time to any human beings anywhere, anytime, f- once and for all. And this is saying the spirit is the pledge that faithful, being faithful to that means you get to be with Jesus later. That's huge. That is justification. So, when we say, is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? The answer is yes. And we focused on faith very specifically here. One more scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17.
2: Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come.
1: Okay, you're something new. And again, This didn't happen in the Old Testament. This didn't happen with John the Baptist. This happened after Jesus is crucified and is raised and the Spirit comes, and it happens just to the true followers of Christ. It is a beautiful picture. So, Jonathan, let's wrap this up, New Testament justification.
2: Well, New Testament justification is from God and does not come to us by faith. It is an actual acquittal from sin and therefore far beyond the reckoned righteousness of the Old Testament. This justification by faith in this age of the gospel is the track to heaven for all who will receive it.
3: So justification by faith, faith in what? It's faith in the ransom of Jesus Christ that allows us to be a son and be in harmony with God's will and God's
1: way. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's I think clear. I got it. <laughs> you know, and, and see, the thing is, folks, that we have to understand is when we look at a subject like this, there's a lot of details. And you can say, wow, you know, that was confusing. Get the show notes, okay? And go through this again with the show notes in front of you so you can watch and look at the scriptures and see how they tie together and see the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and what's required with the call and the acceptance and God choosing so that we can understand that justification is by faith. But that doesn't mean it's not about works. Oh, no, 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 not even remotely close. Works are such a massive part of this. You have no idea. So do not forget. Do not forget to come back for part two, and we'll put this whole thing together and define what a real, true Christian life actually looks like, justified by faith and works. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at christianquestions.com. Also, a big part of of spreading the, the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. we greatly appreciate it. And coming up next week, well, you know what's coming up next week. That's all we've been talking about. Is it faith or works that gets us to heaven? Part two. We're going to be talking about works and how they're an integral part of true Christianity. Talk to you then.